Welcome to the Chasing Capital podcast, where we focus on notable VCs, operators, and founders in their 20s and 30s, giving insight and advice to university students. I'm quite excited to have Thomas Klokanas as a seventh guest on the show today. VC at White Star Capital focusing on crypto, digital assets, fintech, and gaming. Previously, Thomas helped lead strategy at Consensus and Meridio, and did equity research at Barclays and TMT M&A at various banks. Thomas has a BA in finance from Bocconi University in Milan, master's from HEC Paris, and an MBA from Columbia Business School, where he was the co-president of the FinTech Club. Let's dive in. Okay, so starting off, I want to ask if you thought growing up in France and going to school in Italy, France, and then at Columbia Business School gives you a unique perspective on markets and just VC and tech in general. Yeah, um, great question. So, I mean, I think it just applies to the lens of today and that markets today are very, very global, right? Whether you're talking about crypto, which is inherently global from day one, all the way through to kind of, um, you know, less liquid asset classes like venture, they're, they're increasingly global and the lines between stages and geographical players are being blurred. So perhaps selfishly, I like to think that having a bit of an international outlook on the world and, and understanding different cultures not only helps in kind of like liaising with entrepreneurs from different backgrounds, understanding trends from different consumer and enterprise backgrounds, but also just on being able to have that kind of 360 visibility and, and ability to connect. So, you know, that's something that I've enjoyed in my personal path that certainly was recreated in B school at, at Columbia. Um, but also that White Star does pretty well. And that's part of the reason I ended up there. So I'll kind of pause there, but certainly feels like it's uh, topical and helpful and I, I wouldn't change it. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And, and because you kind of study finance and management in these various geographies, do you think that the way kind of the pedagogy and also the content is different? Yes and no. Um, so I think at the academic level, there's a bit of a yes piece. Um, Europeans have a tendency to be a little bit more academic, whereas I think in the US and North America, and I would even say in the UK, so perhaps in the Anglo-Saxon world, you put a little bit more emphasis on the practical. Um, so for example, my bachelor's at Bocconi, my master's at SSA were pretty academic in addition to doing, you know, finance classes and such. Like, we, I, I continue to have, you know, advanced math classes and things like that. Whereas when you go to business school in the U.S., math isn't really part of the conversation. Um, so I think there's that kind of like emphasis on the more practical, emphasis on the more academic. Ultimately, when it comes to applying that in the workplace, I do think those two things kind of end up um, tallying up or, or tying up pretty nicely in that, you know, there's merits to knowing the, the theory really, really well, really, really deeply. Um, but if you've never applied it, you're going to have a bit of a learning curve and there's merits to having done some more real world case studies, hit the ground running, but still feel like you're hungrier and only scratching the surface. So, yeah, I think there is a bit of a difference, but not so material that it takes away from the transferability of an education on one side of the ocean to then have a career on the other. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, it's interesting because like you do all your investment in crypto and basically all these, all like the financial kind of like stuff underneath is being completely exposed. So I would see how more the academic. Yeah. I think is actually helpful there. Yeah, the irony there is obviously crypto is a super, super nascent asset class and, and tech stack, right? So you're starting to see, I think schools have some academic content for crypto and actually Columbia is one of those. And I know you guys in the lab have, have kind of pushed that conversation forward. But yeah. I think as far as the, the, the more technical academic education with regards to like the technical engineering side of crypto, there's still probably a lot of work to be done. And, and I'm excited to see more schools getting involved. But I have to say outside of the US, it seems like that hasn't really kickstarted yet. Yeah, no, definitely. Like actually we had a, we have a blockchain class that a professor did some work with Ethereum, started teaching here, but it, he's a theoretical CS 
professor, so it's all theory. And he was actually asking whether whether the blockchain club itself is going to start teaching some like solidity, mm -hmm. maybe some Rust tutorials for students, because yeah. as you said, there it really is there's no infrastructure around the actual languages. Yeah, no, absolutely. And very cool that you guys have that course. I think uh, even if it feels a little too dry and academic, I'm sure it's a solid foundation. It's more than a lot of other institutions have. So great to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy because in the course, we're, we're looking at some of the newer, like whether proof of stake is actually a viable option, particularly some of these other, some of the different variations of it. And it's funny because we basically some of the conclusions were we're not really sure yet, but there are also all these live protocols that are using some of these different actual methods. So it's interesting because like the stuff you're learning is basically what's going on. So it's like actually going on in front of you with all these protocols. Because a lot of them is basically like real world science experiments almost. Yeah, a lot of tech experiments, a lot of psychological experiments, a lot of game theory experiments. It's it's meshing together a bunch of disciplines that also haven't really overlapped in the past, right? But completely take your point and agree there. Yeah. And just go, looking at some of your investments, so for Multis, like how do you because there are tons of these different institutional like custody crypto service providers that have been getting you know a lot of funding recently one that came to mind is like nidig how, how do you see them like differentiating themselves is there just room for multiple obviously in the traditional financial system there are a lot of different like tons of different banks a lot of different uh brokerages etc so do you see a similar thing playing out yeah so that's a great question and i'll answer your question succinctly first with a yes i probably do see something similar playing out and that it's not necessarily a winner take all but taking a step back i'll kind of tell you why i think taking a step back cryptos found product market fit in a couple areas right i think because there are some elements of crypto in other areas the infrastructure has found some element of product market fit people are using you know dev tools and infrastructure tools like infure like truffle to deploy and test applications um, and query on-chain data and things like that. You have crypto as a speculative asset class. Historically, that's been mostly a retail thing, but now it's in increasingly an enterprise and institutional thing. You have DeFi and stable coins as kind of the, the future of fintech, and then you have more media-focused applications where notably NFTs have been all the rage, right? So an investment like Multis kind of falls in between the first three categories, right? In a way, it's a piece of infrastructure that you need to be able to, you know, have kind of like native crypto banking. In another way, it is very much a play that caters to the crypto as an alternative asset class. And then finally, it is very much a meshing of multiple DeFi components, right? And so... Then that means, you know, multi-stratos three of those categories, but but it's still very different from something like a nighting, right? So you have a couple of different custodians. For starters, at the tech piece of the puzzle, I think you have, you know, custody solutions that are non-custodial versus custodians. And so Nidig is a custodian, Multis is a custody solution. It is non-custodial. They've taken the Gnosis Safe Wallet, which as I'm sure you know is a multi-sig, um, but they don't hold your keys, right? So so there's that difference. And then there's who they're going after and what are the other products bundled on top of the custody solution of the custody product, right? And Nidig has much more of like a market maker prime brokerage model, um, specifically focused on Bitcoin and kind of USD cash lending and stable coins. Whereas something like Amultis is more trying to be, I would say, a crypto native B2B bank, particularly for protocol team dApps, uh, protocol teams, sorry, DAOs, and eventually perhaps also SMEs that come from the traditional world, but are starting to accept crypto. And so what I mean there is like, what Multis has done is they've taken the Gnosis Safe wallet and turned that wallet into like a crypto bank account, right? It's piped into Compound, so it's kind of a savings account. It's piped into token sets, so you can also use it as, a, use it as like your asset management account. You can take out insurance uh, using Nexus to, to kind of cover those things, right? Yeah. Equally, they've built out the ability for you to do payroll with stable coins, which historically stable coins are good to do payroll and that they're quick to send, they're worth a dollar, they're stable. 
But yeah. if I wanted to pay a workforce of 100 people, I would have to do every 100 employee manually every month. Yeah. Um, they've built in other features like the ability to factor in invoices through request network, put those in DeFi. And then final piece of the puzzle, and this is where I get really excited, is they're working together with banking and service partners to integrate a bank account. So effectively what Multis will become, and then I'll kind of finish on how that differs from NIDIG, is basically one interface that is kind of like an Argent wallet for businesses, but also incorporates a bank account. So that you as a small company or the team at Ave or Compound can manage all your operational finances, be they in fiat, be they in crypto, in one place and put that money to work in your savings account and robot and robo-advisor solutions if you choose to, right? So that's more focusing, like, like I said, right? These teams that that hold and custody a bunch of tokens and whose businesses are predominantly denominated in tokens. We we now have a DAO to DAO economy that's big enough for that to exist. Yeah. But equally, it increasingly um, will capture you know, merchants online and e-commerce solutions that are starting to accept crypto, right? Whereas NYDIG is more going after like hedge funds and, and some of these more institutional financial market players that are going, um, that are going into kind of the crypto asset class. So I would say, A, they're very different, but even within each segment, I personally think you have room for more than one winner, notably geographically, right? Like in the case of Multis, it's non-custodial, it's a regulatory light business model. But if you go back to NYDIG, they're very US centric in their go to market and the licenses that they have to operate, right? So you could very well have one or two local winners in North America, one or two local winners in Europe, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how we think about it at this stage in the market. But I think to your point, Matt, and this is the last point I'll raise, is there's likely to be a decent bit of consolidation at some point, whether that happens now at an accelerating rate or kind of continues at this rate and accelerates faster later, not sure. But that's something we've seen historically, right? The big acquirers in crypto have been Binance, Coinbase, Square, Gemini. But increasingly, we're seeing, you know, SBI Holdings, Facebook, um, more traditional companies kind of get involved. Yeah. And would it make sense in this context, like if Coinbase would acquire like this type of company and then try to integrate it with all their more kind of like institutional focused offerings? Or you really think it, it's more so suited as this independent entity? Because, I mean, it's not only institutions, also, like, as you said, SMEs also potentially these DAOs. I mean, I think that's a pretty interesting thing because not that many, not that many kind of like institutions or there's not a lot of infrastructure for these DAOs to actually operate and manage all the money they have. Like sure you have the voting and governance, but in, I think we've seen these all these protocols, it's not, it's not working as like well as people imagine. Yeah. That's so interesting to see like what tools can be developed there. Yeah, I mean, so a couple questions in there that, that I picked up on. The first is like, would it make sense for Coinbase or another exchange to potentially acquire a business like Multis? I mean, I think it might. And I think that's why you see all the big exchanges have a venture arm or do some corporate development type venture investing in addition to M&A. And oftentimes companies that, you know, Gemini, Circle, Binance, Coinbase have acquired were companies in which they put a small venture check at first because they saw strategic value in that. Um, so that, that's kind of the first piece, right? I think it might. I think it also depends on the direction they choose to take, right? I'm sure you dug a little bit into Coinbase's S1. Um, Coinbase has a play in, you know, staying a pure financial services company and focusing on crypto. Coinbase could also move into securities as they increasingly become denominated on chain, but also Coinbase to take, could take a more alphabet slash Google um, kind of spin and, and start offering products and services that go well beyond kind of speculation. And, and I'm sure you've seen they were actually um, rumored to be launching a media arm, right? So depends on the direction they would take and they have a lot of optionality at this point in the road. Um, but definitely, I think most of the large players in crypto, particularly the exchanges are taking that lens on the world where they're like, hey, it might make sense for us to acquire this later on. Let's place a small bet, learn from this team, make like, you know, um, stay close to these, these guys or girls and, 
if at some point they get an offer, we want to be in a position to to try and rival that if we choose to. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And you mentioned how there's there's a lot of kind of geographical dispersion because just dealing with different regulations and just different laws in these countries. Do you think that that's necessary or are we going to see more international kind of crypto focused companies? I mean, I guess it's more possible in infrastructure. That's where it makes sense. Yeah. With like, like see centralized exchanges, for example, you see that and they're all a lot of there's tons of unicorns just across different geographies. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great question and you know a multi-billion dollar question. I think to your point, like lower in the tech stack, you know, when it comes to infrastructure and certainly when it comes to protocol and even layer two protocols in DeFi, these products are kind of global from day one. But as you get kind of higher up the tech stack and notably to more centralized products that leverage decentralized architecture, you get to see more local winners. Part of that is because of you know bandwidth constraints, cultural affinity in terms of going to market. The other parts are kind of regulatory licenses. Well, you pointed it out perfectly. I think the landscape today is a little bit fragmented. You have local winners in all markets. Binance is probably the closest thing to a, to a global winner when it comes to centralized exchanges. But you are starting to see these centralized like local winners make acquisitions in other markets to accelerate their go-to-market there. So I do think a company like a Coinbase or you know, an OKX in China, who, who I believe is linked to OKCoin here in the US, could become a global leader as a sex. But um, at the moment, I do think that uh, inherently sort of by design and because of regulation, it's a little more fragmented. I think regardless of whether you're a centralized company in crypto or, you know, the founder of a DeFi protocol, you probably want that global vision though, right? That's a big piece of like what crypto is supposed to offer. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you think like more infrastructure investments are are more conducive to traditional kind of venture capital models as opposed to a lot of these protocols that have the tokens themselves? Or like when you personally are evaluating or looking at different investment opportunities, do you kind of look across the whole gambit? Yeah, so I think you can't be a serious investor in this space if you're not looking at both equity and tokens, right? Um, you know, crypto is, is a paradigm shifting technology. It started with Bitcoin and kind of like the new age of money, but in many ways, it's also the new age of the internet. and. And you know, some companies will, will leverage crypto and digital assets to build a very centralized company and therefore they will only ever issue equity. In my mind, it rarely makes sense for a centralized entity to issue a token. Um, yeah. There are a few exceptions to that rule. However, like for the first time ever, we can monetize networks and networks can be owned by their users and other stakeholders. And I think that's interesting. And so, yes, to answer your question, like our fund and I think most other funds that are, that are seriously looking at this space are looking to capture both. We evaluate from our standpoint, both in a similar way, which is like at White Star, we're, we're a venture investor, right? We are looking to, even where we invest in tokens, partner with the entrepreneurs, work with them for a number of years, as opposed to kind of do short-term trading. So, you know, the yeah. same criteria that we apply to venture, we kind of apply to, to traditional, um, to, to, to token investment, sorry. And so for example, like, I guess a couple of dimensions of things we'll look at are, you know, the team, is their founder market fit? Do we think they can kind of execute on this? The market, is it a sizable enough opportunity or is it growing fast enough to become one to have this kind of like venture scale return? The product, the tech, yeah. is it the right way to go about this market? And then I think the next point is, is where we get to your question, which is like in traditional equity, you look at the business model and like, how is this going to capture um, value? Uh, but equally in, in the tokens, you know, we look, we look at the token economics and we think about how the token is going to capture value. And so a lot of the tokens from 2017 were pure utility tokens and quite frankly, did not capture value. But increasingly what you're seeing with some of these DeFi protocols that are spitting, spitting out actual fees, sometimes attributable to either liquidity providers or token holders, you can kind of model this, this thing out and actually track the value capture in real time, which is great. 
Um, last but not least, since I started running down kind of the bulleted list, you know, the other dimensions of things we'll look at are probably legal and regulatory, traction, the competitive landscape, the roadmap, and the fundraising history. And so it's the confluence of those two things, all those things, sorry, that kind of leads us to take a venture style bet, which means looking three to 10 years out on our investment as a buy and hold stake and, go and, and get involved in governance if applicable perspective, but definitely more analogous to kind of equity investments. You do, however, I think need more liquid hedge fund type investors in crypto, right? Like activist shareholders, um, that's something that's gonna exist in crypto as well. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the votes on protocols like Maker and Compound. Some of them have been a little contentious. The reality is governance is still really, really low, right? So we're slowly seeing kind of the rise of protocol politicians and like activist crypto investors and, and kind of DAOs that get involved on specific themes like Flamingo DAO within the, the NFT ecosystem. And, and I'm excited to see more of that. But from my shoes, I take that venture lens on, on the token side as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the, yeah, the governance thing is funny because you definitely have a few loud voices, but the rest, like most of the votes, nothing really happens. I mean, we were recently delegated some votes of Washington Columbia, basically just all this kind of just like voting with kind of the rest of the flow of the, yeah. whatever they're doing. But yeah, I'm definitely excited to see how that evolves. And also, and so you guys, you invested in Rally as well. And I was curious, do you think, do you see the future of these social tokens as like a standalone, basically derivative betting on the success of this creator or person? Or do you more so it being a, you want to see it being necessary for that to be integrated into various platforms. So an example, like on Clubhouse, there's a rally integration, I believe. I haven't seen it, but I heard there was one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because I think that's a really cool one. Um, so yeah, so I think social tokens, maybe just taking a step back, are, are a play on the creator economy, right? Like creators have now gotten to a point where, and by creators, I mean anyone from like a tier one artist that you know might be a musician from a popular band all the way to perhaps a digital artist that makes drawings that, you know, has his own following, right? And so these creators, I think in this day and age in 2021, where internet penetration is greater than ever, and most people have a pretty powerful computer in their pocket um, with their smartphones, these creators have their own communities and their communities transcend closed networks, right? If I'm a creator, my community is with me, regardless of whether I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, or whatever, or on my own website, perhaps, right? And so what I think social tokens allow to do is kind of two things. One, they allow creators to go cross-platform as opposed to being captive to certain platforms. And we've seen the threats that that has with, you know, being deplatformed or, or kind of the, the business models that you're locked into and such. But also two, it allows you to build completely new engagement models and, and business models with your fans, right? So yeah. to your point, the rally integration on, on Clubhouse allows creators to start a room and say, hey, only if you hold my creator coin, my social token, my you know fan loyalty point, whatever you want to call it, can you access this room? And equally, you can you can choose to start accepting payment for some of your goods and services that you offer in your own native token if there's a secondary market for it and it has value. And that collapses the cost of doing business with something like you know Twitch creators or PayPal and kind of the the, the rent that these are all taking. So I think the opportunity for something like Rally kind of straddles both of the things that you said in that you know, these integrations with existing Web2 platforms that are closed are great, but it allows them, it allows you as a fan and you as a creator to kind of keep tracking each other outside of those platforms as well and to continue enabling completely new experiences outside of those. So I'm excited to see more. I think the next actually wave of NFTs is increasingly going to be intertwined with social tokens. We kind of saw V1 of NFTs being kind of these static images um, you know, like Beeple's art piece that was sold at Christie's or a piece of land in the metaverse. But, but increasingly, NFTs are, I think, a piece of the creator economy in that 
it allows um, artists to capture the, the really long, long tail of their super fans that have a higher willingness to spend. And so if you start, in, if you start interweaving that with social tokens, it gets really interesting. You know, maybe I, Thomas, have 100,000 fans. Only if you hold my creator coin and you're in my private WhatsApp group or my private Discord group, can you be eligible to receive for free or, or first bid, first dibs or whatever my, my, my NFT sale. Um, and maybe that NFT actually is not just an art piece, maybe it's my concert ticket, right? So I think we're going to see more productive uses of NFTs being intertwined into the social economy. And I think creator tokens are going to play a great part as kind of like the access gateways for that. And, and while there is a financial element to it, I would stress that in the case of Rally, like a lot of fans actually earn social tokens, they're not only buying them, right? So the other cool thing is like these things have value as the creator's um, following grows. But initially, you're not just printing money out of thin air. You're just, you know, saying, hey, this is a loyalty point for me as a creator of sorts. How does the earning function typically work, actually? I, uh, I didn't know that. That's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, creators, so it, it kind of depends on the platform, right? On platforms like Roll, I believe, don't quote me on this, that um, creators kind of sell their coins. On platforms like Rally, we've seen creators let their fans earn their coins and then kind of they're sold in the secondary market. The earnout really depends on the creator and what they choose to do, right? Yeah. But um, Rally is not taking fees from creators, which we think is something that's really powerful, right? We want there to be a low barrier to entry, both from a financial and from a technical standpoint. And that's why we also love the Rally team. And, and I think the, the elegance of their API beats um, the rest of the market. We yeah. also want there to be um, just sizable interest and kind of anyone can get in so yeah i think that it, it, it really really does depend but that's the beauty of it it's kind of the art of the possible yeah that makes sense do you see a more centralized platforms like a traditional social media platform tightly integrating with social tokens around kind of sharing into that economics or maybe or like maybe like enable an easy way for a fan to kind of start earning the token of a particular creator yeah, so I love that you said that because the beauty is for most of them, um, this stuff is actually happening already, but it's not the social media platform that has to integrate, right? It's just they have APIs that allow people to build on top of them. And for as long as you're not violating those terms and conditions, you can. And so, for example, Rally is already overlaid successfully, and there are like solutions to use Rally on top of Twitch, on top of Clubhouse, as you rightfully pointed out, right? So I think we're going to see more and more of that. I don't know if you caught this, but I think Instagram, for example, is having a creator summit in which um, a good part of the programming is around social tokens and NFTs. So yeah, absolutely, I think. Um, you know, These platforms, their success is contingent on eyeballs and attention and they get those eyeballs and attention by letting their creators make money. So I think they're looking for ways to, to help grow the pie while still keeping their creator community somewhat captive to their platform. Yeah, I, mean, I I think I actually read that, but it was more when I saw it, it was more so from like I guess the crypto community perspective of backlash against Instagram kind of bandwagon. Yeah. But for yeah. the typical fan, I mean, I personally think that they don't like they kind of care less. Yeah, like what platform it's on, and since so many Instagrams more familiar, do you think that that's probably where we're going to see this adoption, or do you think it's going to be more kind of like a crypto native adoption? Yeah, I think I love that you asked this question that you framed it with the Instagram example, because I think it'll depend on the segment, right? Like yeah. crypto art is inherently more difficult to understand for people who haven't dabbled in crypto and who don't see, who don't yet see perhaps the value in something that is digitally, digitally scarce and provably so. And so like, you know, the, the Beeple piece that's all sold for $69 million, it sold to a crypto whale, right? Metacovan. Whereas if you look like at NFT games that are pulling in licensed content from the real world, like so rare, which licenses with soccer clubs from around the world to issue out Neymar and Bappe cards and whatever, 
the bulk of their users are new to crypto. They're not, they're not crypto users, right? They're just people who enjoy soccer. And so they're coming to the platform because the content itself is what pulls them in. And, and my personal thesis is, goes back to what you were saying, which is like, what is it like 10 to 15% of the population in the US owns some form of crypto. And in the, in the UK, I think it's about 10 and come to Europe, it's about lower. Most people don't really, they're not crypto savvy. They're not crypto whales, right? They, they see the value in digital scarcity. And I think we saw that, like, I just saw a Gucci purse sold in Roblox for 4k, whereas that real purse is, is worth 3k, right? So people are already spending money on digital content. If you tell them that the digital content now has the certificate of ownership and the IP for it is provably scarce. They're going to keep doing that, but I do not think that that means that they want to download a MetaMask wallet and learn what gas is, right? So my personal take is the blue ocean of users that have yet to enter uh, enter crypto will be interacting with you know more custodial wallets and tools like Magic Labs for the onboarding than they will be downloading MetaMask wallets. However, you will still have a, a growing segment of the population in absolute numbers, perhaps not in relative numbers, that wants to be their own bank, that wants to be self-sovereign. And I think you and I fall squarely in that second category, but I do think the other will be bigger. No, that's interesting and kind of related. So then do you think, do you think something like gaming could could basically be like a killer app for kind of mainstream crypto adoption? I mean, NFTs, that's where it seems like NFTs makes the most sense and is logical for people because they're used to spending tons of money on skins and stuff. And it'd probably be a nicer kind of guarantee that you actually own it as well as kind of these in-app tokens because there actually are even though not cryptocurrency, there are basically token economies within Roblox. Yeah, Robux, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, so absolutely. You might have caught this, but we announced our fund's final closing at $50 million last week, and we notably announced Ubisoft as one of our LPs, the large French gaming company. And so Ubisoft and many others in the gaming world have been very active in the crypto space for some for a couple of years now, more in R&D mode, but now they're going into production with some of the advantages you mentioned in mind. And so, you know, I think one thing that's interesting from the publisher standpoint, from the gamer company standpoint, is you can now do a couple of things with crypto you can do before. A, you can grow the pie of digital goods in that they're now more valuable inherently because they're digitally scarce, they're the actual ownership and so on and so forth. And so your player's willingness to pay should augment in time. B, you can bake in perpetual royalties forever, right? In the smart contract. If I sell you my name, our card on so rare, there is still um, you know, 2% or whatever I baked into the contract at onset kind of in there. Uh, whereas previously, if I sold you my skin, I most likely did it on third party marketplace where I gave you my password and the publisher got zero cents. Right. Um, and also see, you can now do, um, micro payments and kind of in-game currencies, uh, at a much lower cost than what you could do before, which not only lets you save a little bit on your margin, but also I think allows you to capture the long tail of the, of the player economy that perhaps wasn't spending much because it didn't make sense to pay a dollar, two dollars, fifty cents. So yeah, I think, I think gaming is definitely going to be one of the killer use cases. In my mind, I'm particularly excited about a couple things. I'm particularly excited about licensed content coming on chain. So rare was one example like I gave, but also I like what Animoca did by spinning out sandbox which was a previous metaverse game that they had that had an existing following into a blockchain game i think those are really kind of neat applications um i also think you know na uh, native crypto metaverses like decentraland like somnium i think will continue to have legs my personal thesis and our personal thesis is that increasingly gaming is starting to look um and kind of exhibit traits of like early e-commerce um, also social networks, right? The lines are being blurred. Like Gen Zers, they're hanging out inside Roblox. That's where they go talk to their friends. It's not Snapchat, it's not Facebook. Yeah. Equally, just like Snapchat, Facebook, and, and kind of Instagram have all already or are going towards selling goods within their apps with like Instagram Marketplace, 
you can envision a world in which lines keep getting increasingly blurred and where you know the top real estate in front of the waterfront where there is your gucci store your apple store or whatever it might be more valuable so i'm particularly excited in those two segments and i think there is a lot more to do also around fun and engaging titles where you know you can play to earn and like an example of a game that's done a killer job about is axie infinity for example yeah I mean, it's interesting also, like you meant, because there are people who already spend tons of money on these virtual goods. And like, but it's interesting because I mean, I would think that the sense are even more aligned because it's almost now an investment because you can just easily transact. Because there are, aren't there tons of almost like, I think they call it like gray market accounts for these different ver like virtual goods, yeah. even like actual physical accounts? Yeah, I remember uh, when I was in high school, uh, a, a friend of mine used to. Um, to basically create World of Warcraft accounts, play like a madman, get the players to, I don't know what crazy level, and then sell them. And the publisher got, got nothing for that, right? He was just selling the password and username. Um, but now with crypto, you can kind of work your way against that, uh, around that, sorry, let the original person who was the great player boosting up the accounts build up their reputation, but kind of sell those unique accounts, not the whole thing, and have to start from scratch every time. So, and the publisher gets to capture some of that, some of that traffic, and 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 also know what's going on, right? Data analytics matters to gaming companies, and and today, to when things like this happen in the gray market, to your point, they do not have any visibility. They can maybe extrapolate like this player went from being great to sucking, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's true. And just shifting back to college, is there kind of a less typical piece of advice for college students or anyone who wants to get involved in VC tech or even crypto that you Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you, you know this about my background. We've had a chance to, to exchange a couple of times. I kind of started first in the banking world and I would say crypto VC tech is kind of the polar opposite in that, you know, uh, banking world, consulting world, perhaps the big tech world like Facebook and Google, very codified, structured recruiting. You know exactly what to expect. You know, you know when you're supposed to apply, you have a whole analyst class with you, you can Google the interview questions to prep, all this stuff, right? Whereas I think in, in kind of earlier stage tech and in venture and in crypto, it's more about the hustle and the intellectual curiosity and your ability to forge relationships and find where you can add value and kind of hitting the ground running. And I'll tell you the story because I think it's relevant. Um, you know, both my job at Consensus and my job at White Star, to my knowledge, coming out of Columbia, never made it online, right? I just kind of met these people. I let them know I was interested in this and that. Told them I had done other stuff in the background that in, in my prior background that was relevant. Discussions kind of uh, accelerated, um, and next thing I know, I was kind of in their office working a couple of days a week. And you know, a couple of weeks later, it became a full time thing. So I would say, put yourself out there. Um, people in venture and crypto are are very open and welcome to help. Um, get some relevant stuff. You know, I think in crypto, one thing people say is write, 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 even if no one's reading it, because then when you have a conversation, you can kind of send something. Um, and like Masari does a great job, for example, as a, as a company that helps people break into the space. They run this community analyst program where basically someone with 10 Twitter followers a year later ends up being like a big name in crypto because they're one of the most read media blogs or most read newsletters, right? So I think just getting involved, getting yourself out there, reaching out to people, not being afraid of reaching out cold, um, going to meetups, that's that's probably the best way to do it as opposed to, you know, hitting the books kind of rigid, rigidly and studying like a madman before your interviews for the more structured recruiting processes. So they're definitely kind of different. That makes a ton of sense. So, but for writing, like, does it, how did, so it doesn't even have to be that differentiated. It's more so just like an effort thing. Or the more differentiated, different? the better, obviously, yeah, but yeah. I don't think it has, right. I think, I think your pieces will get better one-on-one. -on -one. Like one thing that I love and hate is we write very, very long investment memos um, when we're making an investment for our LPs. Right. And part I dislike is it's a lot of work. Um, and to your point, sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, but everyone knows this stuff. It's not that differentiated in analysis. You know, NFTs are great, blah, blah, blah. 
but equally, it really helps me frame my thoughts. And sometimes what I find is like, you know, the memo after that ends up being infinitely better because I got to structure my thoughts in the first one. And so I have a couple of friends who've broken into crypto by first writing about, you know, like what are the three use cases for crypto that have product market fit? Not differentiated at all, but they had one or two people reach out or they stumble on an article that they liked. And then their next piece was much more insightful, much more targeted to something. I think one thing that works really, really well in crypto is if you're going to write something that's more differentiated, you can actually re reach out to the people that you're writing about, right? Say you're writing an article about compound and compound cash. There's a good chance someone at compound is going to answer you um, if you reach out you know, enough times and at the right time to give you some input on your article. And then you end up with something all of a sudden that's not only just branded by Alex Tobaroff, that's branded by Alex Tobaroff with contributions from X, Y, and Z. So I think there are a number of ways to make sure that your piece surfaces. If your first piece gets 10 reads, that's still, I think, worth worth the effort. Yeah, no, that, that's great. I think that's great advice. And just to close, is there a work of fiction that can be from school or more recently that has stuck with you and has influenced you in any way? Yeah, this is gonna be the most cliche crypto response, but uh, I do think the sovereign individual is a must read, um, you know, written in the late 90s with kind of the 2000s in mind. And, and a lot of that really resonates really, really well today with kind of the shift to Web3 and crypto. So for anyone looking to break into this space or just interested in, you know, the transition to a more digital world and, and how that impacts our identities and how we all interact, um, that's one that I put on the radar. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you.